from the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. This is Pitt MedCast. I'm Erica Lloyd. In this episode, we're diving into an emerging field known as evolutionary medicine, which is lending a hand in efforts to contain COVID-19. More on that later. First, a little primer on evolutionary medicine. The indomitable Elaine Vitone distills her feature story, Untangling Darwin, from Pitt Med Magazine in 2017. In a laboratory overlooking the Monongahela River, the University of Pittsburgh's Vaughn Cooper and his team are coaxing bacteria to do in captivity what they've always done so artfully in the wild, as have humans and every other life form. We evolve. It's a never-ending story. This environment selects for this trait, that for another trait, and so on, in a highly complex network of falling dominoes. Evolutionary biologists, like Cooper, have been working to retrace this network, the life story of life itself, for the past 150 years. Cooper's experiment is a little different from his progenitors, though. Instead of hypothesizing about evolution after the fact, his team is watching it happen. He figured out how to catch it in the act a little over a decade ago. And it's actually ridiculously simple, he says. The experiment goes like this. Stick some bacteria in a test tube with a plastic bead. Give the cells some nutrients to nosh on and a nice warm spot in an incubator and leave them be for 24 hours. Overnight, these tiny pioneers make a happy home of their seven millimeter wide world, just as they would on, say, a hospital handrail or a catheter or the lung of a patient in the ICU. Then, the bacteria asexually beget a whole mess of babies, many wee teams of clones and mutants amassing in a motley crew. Of course, which ones among them survive to make their own broods is up to chance, or at least in part. And as chance would have it for this particular bacterial family, the lab introduces a do-or-die ultimatum. Each day, the researchers replace the nutrients, add a second bead, and then let the test tube simmer for 24 hours. Then they swap out the older bead for a brand new one. The old beads' breeds are dead, as far as the experiment is concerned. Here's Cooper from his busy lab, which is a little noisy. We take the bead and move it to the new test tube. And if they're not on there, they don't make it. Okay. And then we take the opposite bead the next day. And if they're not on there, they don't make it. That's it. You know, it's sort of kind of stupid simple, but it's pretty remarkable. In this daily test of fitness, survival favors the bacteria that are best at pressing on to new frontiers. The bacteria that Cooper primarily studies are infamous frontiersmen. They're able to claim new territory with the help of what are known as biofilms. Put simply, a biofilm is a microbial growth on a surface, usually encased in slime, Cooper explains. The goo not only gives bacteria sticking power, but it also makes these cells up to a thousand times tougher to kill. They're physically protected, 
And once the cells start to accumulate in these biofilms, they start to grow slowly. And it's a lot harder to kill slow-growing cells. For bacteria, in no particular metabolic hurry anyway, a drug that inhibits what feeds them is like water off a duck's back. It's the same reason it's hard to kill slow-growing solid tumors. There's a lot to be gained from studying evolution in action, he says. To his amazement, Cooper has seen patterns appear in evolution, leading him to believe what was once unthinkable, that we may be able to predict evolution, at least in certain contexts. Such an ability would have real medical value. Evolutionary biology is at the center of some of the most vexing public health challenges of our time. In cancer, tissue gives rise to mutations, naturally, inevitably, and continuously, until one day, spurred by some challenge or selective pressure, certain cells escape the normal checks and balances of our biology. In antibiotic resistance, bacteria face evolution in a hospital patient's body, a cruel selective pressure cooker of drug after murderous drug in an immune response at the boiling point. So the bacteria fight fire with fire, armies of mutants redoubling and re-emerging, emboldened. If just one cell out of a million survives, it's a chance to carry on. Most bacteria live on surfaces and biofilms. But historically, that has been a tough setting to study. Simply sticking some scum in a tank full of swirling warm liquid and letting nature take its course won't work. Cooper says, that's like Vegas. What happens there stays there. You can't go into that environment and figure out the forces that actually led to those changes. But our system, because it has this daily experimental cycle of renewal, allows you to define those forces as they happen. On a counter in the lab is a machine that looks a bit like a gigantic microwave, a genetic sequencer the researchers affectionately named Roz, for Rosalind Franklin of Double Helix fame. With her help, the team can tell exactly what mutations appear and when. They can track entire bacterial family trees and study biofilms down to the level of individual organisms. Cooper says he's living in the best time ever to study evolutionary biology and microbiology. His studies focus on these evolving organisms not only in test tubes and animals, but also in samples from patient volunteers. Across these bacterial habitats, he's found common themes. Bacterial communities quickly become diverse, and they stay diverse. A lot of diversification is driven by relatively small numbers of genes, no matter how many times Cooper's team repeats the experiment. And when biofilming bacteria reinvent themselves to adapt to new territory, the adaptation that they prioritize above all else is sticking. And that's regardless of whether they land on a surface or inside a living, breathing host. It doesn't really matter what they stick to very much. History is repeating itself again and again with a predictability that he finds stunning. Gavin Sherlock, a Stanford geneticist who studies evolution in yeast, notes that evolution is largely driven by randomness. Thus, we can never predict its future with perfect clarity, but we can project probabilities, he says, 
as scientists now do, in determining which flu vaccine to create each year. And in cases of extreme selective pressure, like that of antibiotics on bacteria, there are only so many mutations that will be viable. Then the probabilities get much higher. Cooper acknowledges that there's work to do yet before the consistency and thus predictability of evolutionary patterns is clear. But he's hopeful, and he says he's not alone. We've had a few international meetings where we've actually talked about predicting evolution, and that really is just, it. gosh, it's a game changer. Evolution has always been taught as a retrospective science. And now we can almost look at evolution from the perspective of an engineer. Selection doesn't optimize. It just sort of acts on the lowest hanging fruit. As long as you make it long enough to reach reproductive age, that's really all evolution cares about. The same goes for bacteria. And in the environment of a hospitalized patient, it's evolution on steroids. Yohei Doi, director of Pitt's Center for Innovative Antimicrobial Therapy, is working with Cooper to learn what traits distinguish the many strains that can evolve in a single hospitalized patient. And they are finding that as bacteria bend over backwards to cope, new vulnerabilities do indeed bubble up. Doi is hoping to eventually capitalize on these shortcomings in the clinic. Say, for example, mutant A warps its structure so antibiotics can't bind to it. Are there weaknesses in the walls? Say mutant B produces an enzyme that eats up the antibiotic du jour like acid. Can that enzyme be blocked? In some cases, the solution may be much simpler. Sometimes, the bacteria mutate to survive an antibiotic. But then when the coast is clear, they mutate back. Which means that antibiotic can be used again. In this big data era, getting data is the easy part. Cooper and other evolutionary medicine experts can help distill things down to a short list of directions to take. For instance, his lab helped pinpoint the mutations that enabled a certain bacteria to gain resistance to a class of go-to antibiotics. The hope is that eventually, at least in some cases, we will know at the onset which kinds of antibiotics are worth prescribing to a patient and which ones are a dead end. In another collaboration with Jennifer Baumberger on the Microbiology and Molecular Genetics faculty at Pitt, Cooper's lab is studying the evolution of pathogens in the airways of people with cystic fibrosis. It's long been known that once these patients catch certain viruses, chronic biofilming bacteria infection tends to follow. By studying cultured cells from the airways of these patients, Baumberger may have uncovered the reason why. Respiratory syncytial virus appears to cause these epithelial cells to jettison their stores of iron, which the bacteria gladly eat up. Because iron is biofilm fuel. In a bacterial homestead, a world where every single day is a new test of do or die, you might expect a Wild West, an every-bug-for-itself kind of rough-and-tumble. But surprisingly, as Cooper's lab was the first to report, that's not the case. Much like how Pittsburgh's topography has preserved its cultural communities over time, Polish, African-American, Jewish, pick your hillside. 
bacterial society folk form physical niches and cultivate group identities. Nestled in their neighborhoods, they adapt and evolve and adapt and evolve again. And instead of being cutthroat in their ways, with winners, losers, and cheats, these groups, and ever-growing numbers of subgroups therein, evolve together. Those are physical niches, right? But they're also sharing metabolites. So the guy that's on the outside is tending to feed the guys it's sticking to. And that's a food web, right? That's producer-consumer relationship. Very, very simple experiment producing these really complex phenomena that we see in nature. And it only takes a few months. This is the story of life in miniature. A single cell evolving into what Darwin famously called the tangled bank of complex, varied, and interdependent species. And it's told in a surprisingly replicable and measurable way. It's easy to forget how clonal we Homo sapiens really are. Just 200,000 years ago, for example, there was just one mitochondrion among our species. Every single one of us descends from the same maternal ancestor who spun out a second one, likely under some pressure to survive. When we lose sight of our origins, it is to our detriment, Cooper says. We tend to focus on the little differences among individuals rather than a broad commonality. Say an elementary school has an outbreak of COVID-19 with three confirmed cases in one week. While quarantining and contact tracing are the best tools that we have for ending lines of transmission, those tools can't necessarily tell you where each of those kids got the virus in the first place. But evolutionary medicine can. Cooper and his team can take positive COVID-19 test swabs and sequence the entire genome of each virus found therein, all 29,000 nucleotides of it. And, using techniques they developed, they can turn it all around in 72 hours or less. Viruses propagate by copying themselves, a less-than-perfect process. In SARS-CoV-2, there's a new mistake or mutation in a given viral lineage about once every two weeks. Because of this, the genomes of the viruses found in cases around the globe have enormous variety, thousands of distinct flavors. When the team sequences a virus, they can compare it with every other sequence ever decoded on the planet. Take our hypothetical elementary school. If the three virus genomes are identical, then that's likely a spreading event. And that might be support for closure, to deep clean, test folks, and hunt for the source within. If the genomes are different, though, that's more in line with random infections coming from elsewhere in the community. Then you could just isolate those families and you could probably keep the facility open. Cooper has partnered with the Louisiana Department of Health and Louisiana State University to help quash novel coronavirus outbreaks in that state's nursing homes, jails, and agricultural work sites. And here in Pittsburgh, he's been using these sequencing techniques for years to sleuth out bacterial pathogens within UPMC hospitals in real time. In December 2020, Elaine talked with Vaughn Cooper about these investigations and other ways that evolutionary biology is helping us make sense of the COVID-19 pandemic.
So welcome. And thanks for joining me, Dr. Cooper. Thank you, Elaine. So when we last spoke a few years ago, we talked about bacterial biofilms and a bit about cancer, but we didn't talk much about viruses. So I'm wondering, how did this work on the novel coronavirus begin for you? I've been interested in studying the evolution of infectious disease since I was an undergraduate. And so I feel like I've done 25 years of training for this instant. The logic that we could use that arising mutational variation to study how the virus itself evolves hit us in the face and we got right to work. We, like many people around the world, began to look at all of the virus sequences that were being deposited by a variety of really forward-thinking institutions, sequencing the entire almost 30,000 nucleotide genome of the virus and, and doing that for lots of viruses and asking if there are any differences. We know that it's originally of bat origin, and then there remain questions of whether there was some intermediate host, like a pangolin or something like that. Bats are amazing in that they unfortunately harbor a large number of viruses, but their immune systems have also co-evolved to tolerate those viruses. Hmm. So because the bat has so many defenses, the virus gets really good at coming up with offenses. Right. It's really problematic that it came from bats. It's had a lot of practice, basically. Exactly. So there's this process of sort of tit-for-tat co-evolution that happens between hosts and parasites like viruses. Often, uh, when the pathogen or virus switches hosts, it's usually maladapted. But occasionally, that maladaptation means that it's actually quite good at causing disease in the new host. More often than not, it doesn't succeed at all. But in the cases that it does cause disease, Sometimes it can cause severe, relatively severe disease because the host has not had any time to evolve its own defenses against that virus. To what extent do you see SARS-CoV-2 evolution as predictable? Oh boy. I think based on the evidence from the last 11 months, the predictable trajectory is that it is accumulating a cloud of variation that generally doesn't matter. And the part that becomes predictable is sort of the absence of genetic variation in some regions, which tell us pretty clearly that those sites are crucial. So even early on, we could see that there are some regions of the virus which are mutation poor if you sample the global population. And so that is a hint that the virus cannot tolerate genetic variation in that region. Those are critical for function. That bias against genetic variation is actually the part that is predictable. Going forward in the post-vaccine world, there's definitely some areas where we basically can predict where escape mutants might arise. So we know where to look. By escape mutants, Cooper means mutants that a vaccine won't be able to fight off. Our forecasting has already gotten quite a bit better. Can you assign that any sort of rough number? Yeah, so we'll say a few dozen mutations at most in critical regions are ones that we're going to be looking for because they're going to be potentially contributing to escape. Those are the same sorts of dynamics that we have already been looking for, obviously to a much lesser extent, 
in the coronaviruses that have been circulating among us for a long time, the sort of common cold causing coronaviruses, they too evolve year upon year. And they also evolve ways to escape pre-existing immunity. So that's partly why you can get those cold viruses more than once because you might not be seeing the same one the next time around. Mm-hmm. Speaking of other bugs that we're all fighting off, how does the predictability of the novel coronavirus compare to influenza? The good news is it's much more predictable than flu. Its mutation rate is several fold lower than the flu virus. That's one point. And the second point is that it does not undergo this process of reassortment where so the flu genome is segmented. And so those pieces can mix and match when those, say, two different viruses co-infect an individual. Those viruses can mix and match. And even variants that just evolve within infection, you can have some measure of reassortment. Long story short, flu is much less predictable than the coronavirus. That doesn't mean that we're not doing a good job, however, of predicting. The novel coronavirus, it's still all one virus. We would say that there's still only one strain, yeah but we have a whole lot of different mutants. We've really worked hard with our language and we still don't have a clear answer for you. But yes, there's still one strain and we call these other differences just mutations or variants, which are functionally the same. I talk about the mutations as subtle and the kind that are useful for fingerprinting, but that do not influence function as far as we can tell. How many variants are out there now? Well, too many to count because essentially every position in the virus has seen mutation. There are thousands of variants. Are there any common misconceptions about SARS-CoV-2 that you'd like to help dispel? I would, yes. So this narrative that the virus is evolving so quickly and vaccines aren't going to work it has been and will continue to be pervasive. Yes, there's genetic variation in SARS coronavirus too. And we can use that genetic variation to improve public health, but that genetic variation is not going to influence vaccine efficacy. The vaccine's likely going to work. If it's going to work on one virus, it's going to work on the next virus. Doesn't mean we won't want to be monitoring down the road for escape variants. But for now, that's the least of our concerns, he says. So the virus that causes COVID-19 and the virus that causes SARS are very close cousins. What happened to SARS and why did it unfold so differently from the pandemic that we're facing now? The global public health response to the original SARS was better. It was aggressive and it was better. Now, the original SARS was somewhat less transmissible and more virulent. And so those two traits made it easier to pay attention to and control. The Hong Kong region and Canada took it unbelievably seriously and quashed it. But again, it, it was somewhat less transmissible. It also didn't have this almost optimal five-day quiet period, a highly infectious period just before the onset of uh, symptoms. So it's not that it evolved itself out of our way. Definitely. It wasn't an evolutionary outcome. It was just both a combination of human response and the intrinsic properties of the virus when it first crossed over to humans. 
And also, let's be clear, we don't know where it went. We don't know really where it came from, and it's possible it could come back. And the same is true for MERS, which still does pop up periodically. What's on your wish list moving forward? Most of us in the U.S. were saddened by the failure to be called on when we were all ready. I think we all anticipated a Manhattan Project scale kind of integrative effort that coordinated the resources that we all had. Above all, I'd hope for investment in a public health infrastructure that is authorized to mobilize the academic medical research enterprise. We have the best enterprise and infrastructure in America and University of Pittsburgh and UPMC are near the fore of that. And I don't believe that we've been tapped the way we could. Can evolutionary biology help with vaccine development down the line? Exactly. An important application of this whole genome sequencing to allow us to study kind of high resolution evolution and action of the novel coronavirus and other viruses is to monitor for variants that suddenly become more prevalent following the rollout of a vaccine. Likewise, you can also do studies during vaccine development to ask a bunch of what-if questions. There are some important studies ongoing from a number of labs around the world, including some here in the Center for Vaccine Research, led by Paul Dupre, asking if there are particular viruses that might be able to escape vaccination. And where we've seen that most often is in patients who are severely immune compromised. The host immune system is just not controlling the virus really at all. And that allows the viral population room to explore genetically. They try out variants that can escape treatment or the immune system. That makes sense. It's not as penned in to a relatively small number of directions it can go. And so it can throw spaghetti at the wall. It can come up with completely new outliers. Yeah. And so the good news is that most of that really is just spaghetti on the wall. Like most of those variants are, are really unfit. But sometimes... Sometimes one sticks. Another question the team tackled was, as the virus evolves, will it adapt in ways that promote transmission? As we headed into the holidays in late December 2020, a mutant made headlines. Scientists have since estimated that B117, as this variant is called, is about 55% more transmissible. So I called Cooper again. So, evolving situation... Tell me about this variant. It's spreading around the UK. It's clear from the sequencing data, which is to say all whole genome sequencing data that's been done by research groups in the UK, that this lineage arose and began to spread more quickly than any of the other lineages, probably back in September. It wasn't recognized as a spreading lineage back then, but now with time and data, it's clear that it's kind of invading the population of viruses that are causing active infections in the United Kingdom. What makes it different from other lineages? Well, it's got a two amino acid deletion in the spike protein. And that's of note because that region is really the 
where sort of the rubber hits the road between the virus and the immune system. It's the target of the mRNA vaccines that have been approved. It is evident, however, that the vaccines work equally well against this variant than any other variant that we've seen circulating. So I want to make that point clear. But it also has, oh, at least a half a dozen other mutations that distinguish it from others. And we suspect that that collection of mutations is interacting in a way to promote its transmission. I read that it has a lot of mutations, more mutations than we would expect. That's right. Yeah, it's curious. It sort of became evident to us as a almost a fully formed distinct lineage, indicating that it it had evolved, you know, a collection of differences, perhaps in one or very few patients, and then began to transmit. Normally, mutations accumulate much more slowly. This one sort of evolved hidden, either in one person or in a small number of people over a period of time, and then emerged quite distinct from others. So best guess, it might have been in an immunocompromised person or people. I think that's a really safe guess. Uh, We don't know that, but many experts have uh, hypothesized that. And that gives the virus a lot more opportunities to throw spaghetti at the wall like we talked about. Exactly. Yeah. And and there's been two really beautiful studies in the last month or two showing that this happens, that patients that are chronically infected, in fact, one of these studies, I believe the Dupre lab was involved in. That paper is in pre-press at this recording. It showed that the virus can accumulate handfuls, multiple handfuls of new mutations, not just in one lineage, but in many lineages. So it becomes a much more diverse population. So this process of co-evolution between the virus and the immune system just goes on longer. I guess all this has kind of got me thinking more about myself as part of something bigger, not to sound too corny, but we are not outside of this ecosystem. We're a part of it. And what we do has consequences. Yeah, I think that's a neat way to think about it. So the choice to mask up or not really matters. And not just to the next immunocompromised patient, although we should certainly be worried about that person. But we have a role in determining what happens to an extent. We do. Yep. And that's true for other pathogens besides this one. Like in antibiotic resistance in bacterial infections, right? Yeah prolonged infections that are not controlled well can become the birthplace of even more sort of scary lineages. People get scared when they hear the word mutant or they see headlines that say it's evolving. What else would you like the public to know about this new variant? I think the point that first must be emphasized is that we know about it because the United Kingdom invested a tremendous effort in sequencing the genomes of these viruses for simply monitoring, looking for instances like this. And they found one. This shows how important it is that our country try to rebuild and reinvest in infrastructure like this. And I would love if my lab could be part of that. We are at the ready. My lab and our company, the Microbial Genome Sequencing Center, is sequencing 400 new viruses over the holidays for our colleagues in Louisiana because they're interested in seeing if this variant might be here in the United States. And of course, as we soon learned, B117 had indeed already made landfall in the U.S., as well as dozens of other countries. 
I'd like the, the public to know that evolution happens. This has been happening with flu for, you know, centuries. <laughs> but all of the primary ways of controlling this virus uh, still matter. And we think that the vaccine is going to work just fine against it. Thanks for listening. The print versions of these stories appear in PitMed magazine, which you can find on our website, pitmed.health.pit.edu. That's pit with two T's. This episode was written and produced by Elaine Vitone. Our music was by Blue Dot Sessions. PitMed magazine is published by the University of Pittsburgh Office of University Communications and Marketing and the School of Medicine.